So this is after the show. And Dr. Culpepper, Z, and I will stay here and take some more questions for the next half hour or 25 minutes. And hopefully, you know, there, there are just an amazing number of questions, so I apologize <laughs> for those we don't get to. We'll try to get it to as many as we can. So we'll try to keep our answers short. Is melatonin appropriate therapy for patients with obstructive sleep apnea who are non-compliant with CPAP? There's no data that I know of using melatonin, per se, in the treatment of sleep in obstructive sleep apnea. Here's an interesting question. Is modafinil a stimulant? You know, are there, you know, what are the long-term side effects of dopamine activation? You know, oh, I, I, yeah. I'll, I'll take a shot at that. Yeah, I'll, sure. I'll ask my colleagues to sort of, you know, one, you know, it, it, these are words. I'm, I'm not sure what makes something a stimulant or not. You know, is, is something which keeps you awake or increases attention a stimulant? Yes. So caffeine is a stimulant. Stimulants are stimulants. Uh, it, it is a different mechanism of action than what we call the classical stimulant. So I'm not sure naming it makes a difference. Your other question is actually a very good one. And there's a very famous study by Nishino Mignot. And if you take a dopamine transport knockout, mm -hmm. modafinil does not, does, right. does ceases to work. So there's very little question that at very, very high, so there's a weak dopamine agonist. It's, it's, uh, so very clear at high doses, when you give mm -hmm. modafinil or armodafinil, at very high doses you start, getting, mm -hmm. you start getting dopaminergic activity. So I don't think it's a matter of chronicity, as your question suggests. I think it's much more a question of dose. Well, and we, we have imaging studies that uh, demonstrate there's a very, very different pattern right. of activation uh, with uh, modafinil uh, than with uh, your typical uh, uh, stimulants. There's, yeah. there's much more specificity yeah. in, in, really in, in the sleep midbrain. Yeah. Right. But I think in general terms, chronic dopaminergic stimulation, especially with the sympathomimetics, uh, can be associated with tolerance and some of these other issues. Yeah. And, and the other part of that question, and other people have asked the question, is just what are some of the long-term side effects? And, 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 and to my knowledge, you know, again, the, the only thing which have come out as individual cases, you know, for example, of some rashes, Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I would check the package label for those, but there are no systematic large mm -hmm. numbers. The side right. effects are primarily things like, uh, you know, headache is probably the most common side that effect, but, yeah. but, but there are no major increases. There are some unique kinds of things, rare events, which you get mm -hmm. with long-term. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. not with long-term use as much as with long-term being on a market and millions of people trying it. But I know of no side effects which increase in severity as a function mm -hmm. of duration right. of use. Yeah. And people need to adjust the dose to be Absolutely. the dose that works for them. And that's, uh, I think, uh, at times, um, you know, side effect is really a, a need for dose change, not... Uh, but it's important to always reassess need for the right. medication yeah. in anyone who's using it Absolutely. chronically. Always look at the risk-benefit ratio Absolutely. every, at least every couple months. Yep. Yeah. You know, how, how you, know, the, you know, if you sort of watch television or, or read newspapers, there's a lot of over-the-counter products. How, how effective are over-the-counter products like nose strips, uh, insert disc in the nose in terms of treating sleep apnea? Well, nose strips uh, can actually, has been shown to perhaps increase the, the, the nasal right. passage, and that can be helpful. But there's really no data on, the, on, on these other forms of treatment that actually address the issue of sleep apnea per se. They may help you breathe a little bit better if you have nasal congestion, but treatment of sleep apnea, yeah, I, I, it's I, very and, poor data. Yeah, right. they, you know, if, if you listen to them, you know, they're saying they'll help with snoring, they'll help with, uh, yeah. uh, you know, s symptoms, 
But but they don't really right. uh, claim to be uh, sleep apnea. I mean, I mean, I think by and large, you know, there's a whole series of things which are oh, advertised. Yeah. You got to remember, there's a continuous sleep apnea from snoring to mild mm -hmm. to moderate mm -hmm. to upper air syndrome and then to severe sleep apnea. To my knowledge, nothing nothing has been shown to be effective for severe sleep apnea syndrome other than CPAP. Right. The, the only exactly. thing that's on the market that it, are these oral appliances, which actually have been shown to be effective, not so much for severe sleep the apnea, for the mild to moderate. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a very good question, is obstructive sleep apnea hereditary? Does it run in families? I'm going to add to that question, if it is run in families, what is it that runs in families? Is it obesity? Is it anatomy? What is it? Well, let me answer the first part because I know a little bit about that, that yes, indeed, uh, sleep apnea can run in families. In fact, Dr. Redline has that right. study called the Cleveland Family you know, right. Apnea Study, so it can be familial. The, the, the second part is a little more difficult. I, I don't know the exact answer to that, whether we know what is exactly familial about it or what is the genetics and, and, and maybe metabolic. I mean, there's some changes in, in, in leptin, in the leptin gene yes. uh, as well. But I don't think we, we're quite there yet to know exactly what, it, what, what is the genetics of that. Some of it could be maxillofacial, the way yeah. your, your face is set up sure, and, yeah. and sets you up right. for that, the anatomy. Yeah, yeah your, the, your jaw you know, well, grows, what, eight times well, compared to the skull? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's very important. You can and see that because not only are the genetic differences... I mean, not, not only the familial differences, but the racial differences. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so is there are, f there are craniofacial. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Is, is, is apnea genetically transmitted? Yes. Right. Yes. But it's a multi-causal right. disorder. Right. So yeah. it could be the plasticity of your upper airway. Mm -hmm. It could be your, your, your risk for obesity, <laughs> on and on and on. So it's right. craniofacial. Okay. Right. You know, Dr. Zia, I'm going to ask you this question. And, you know, I have two pharmacology. I'll give you one each. Can you use rosarium instead of melatonin uh, since... Rosarium is, is regulated by the Food Administration. Can you use Rosarium for shift work sleep disorder, jet lag, or other circadian sleep disorders? Well, first, I have to just say that it's not been studied in, right. in, in those conditions. But uh, melatonin, melatonin has been used. Mel uh, rosarium is, has a longer half-life. So potentially for the insomnia that's associated with a shift work sleep disorder or jet lag, that's that's probably a, a, an appropriate use, right. but really we don't have enough data to use it as a way to align circadian rhythms. Right. Yeah, we get a more standardized treatment if we're using it because we know mm -hmm. what we're giving, whereas right. over-the-counter melatonin, we're not often... Yeah, but, but I just want to repeat one of the things that Dr. Z pointed out, and I think it's very important that, that it is approved by the FDA for insomnia. So if right. you're treating insomnia due to shift work sleep disorder, you're treating insomnia due to jet lag, that's appropriate. If you're treating the jet lag per se or the shift work, the answer, it's not work. Work. The answer yeah. is it's not approved. It it's may work, it may not work. It may work, and it may we, not work right. but it's not approved for that indication. Not enough but data. it'll work for the sleep. Yes, but it won't exactly. work for the It may work on a clock. Rhythm. We just don't exactly. know. We just don't know at this point. Exactly. Okay. You know, you, you mentioned that two drugs are approved for the treatment of, uh, two drugs are for the refractory sleepiness and sleep apnea and then shift work sleep disorder, modafinil and armodafinil. What are the differences between the, those two medications? Mm. Well, uh, armodafinil is, uh, is the isomer, and uh, it's longer acting. And I think that is, uh, you know, gives it particular benefit in terms of, uh, of um, you know, adapting to, to lifestyle where you want a longer acting agent. Right. You want an agent you can take early you know, and really life, you know, last through 
the interval that the patient needs to be uh, alert, mm -hmm. you know, through the shift, you know, often in terms of, uh, of use. Yeah. In terms of data, if you sort of look in the literature, there are published studies looking at armadafinil at improving sleepiness, MSLTs, upwards, and mm -hmm. things like that, at 3, 5, 7 p.m., and that's positive. Those kinds mm -hmm. of data are not po available for the racemate per se. Uh, with upper ear resistance syndrome, where the trachea is narrowed, the melampati score may, be may not be sufficient for the diagnosis of upper ear resistance syndrome. What is the percentage of patients who might be missed in the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea and CPAP not being offered for the treatment option? I mean, I, I don't think anybody said that the melampati score drives you to have a sleep study. I, I, I think... You know, that's one of the things you find in physical findings. Yeah, what, what CMS is requiring right now is that you, you conduct a history and a physical examination and also a questionnaire. But the physical examination just means that if you have a high Malampati score, that that just increases your, your suspicion that that patient may actually uh, will confirm your suspicion of obstructive sleep apnea. And upper airway resistance is not usually narrowing of the trachea. Uh, usually it's, it's really more the, the nasal and upper airway pharyngeal passages. So, so it's going to be very similar. Uh, it's upper airway resistance is when they have respiratory-related arousals that don't meet the criteria for an apnea or, or a hypopnea. Given the recent evidence that obstructive sleep apnea is far more common than the 3% originally uh, postulated by, by Dr. Young in, in the New England Journal of Medicine, <laughs> is, it, is it not essential that the diagnosis and treatment of sleep apnea become a primary care function with referral to problem non-responders? There are not enough and may never be enough sleep specialists to diagnose and manage obstructive sleep apnea. Well, I think, uh, again, the, the recognition of sleep apnea clearly is a primary care function. You know, we need to be alert for it. We need to know the signs of it. We need to know uh, how to do the physical exam uh, to identify uh, the patients uh, that are at risk for it. We need to be able to identify the sequela of it. Uh, you know, so clearly we have a major function in being able to bring into treatment the patients that uh, you know, have uh, obstructive sleep apnea. Now, within the obstructive sleep apnea population, you know, like, like every other population, there's a bell curve. You know, there's a group of patients yeah. that uh, are very easy to treat, very compliant. I wish there were more of those. Uh, and then there's, a, a, unfortunately, a larger group of patients that it gets complicated. Yeah, and I find that, uh, uh, you know, the vast majority of patients benefit uh, you know, from sleep consultation. Now, there may be, um, you know, that may be a one-time uh, for some patients, but for other patients, you know, it evolves into multiple visits as we get the patient to finally uh, get onto a treatment regime yeah. that really works for them. So, but it's a good point. Absolutely, it's a really well taken absolutely. point. Institute of Medicine talked about that, and I yes. think it's a, you know, it, it's very clear. Even even sleep specialists, not sleep specialists, we're certainly not going to have enough sleep laboratories to diagnose all of these patients. Yeah. So, so you know, as, as, as Dr. Z pointed out, this is a fluid process. It's a fluid process, and I think the more we're able to. Uh, educate and bring to bear mm -hmm. the, the issue of sleep apnea, the more I think primary care doctors will be able to manage mm -hmm. a good deal of, of, you know, of OSA. Well, and, and, like, and, I, and I hope they will. Yeah, with, with, with most uh, conditions, 
we have a subgroup of primary care physicians who Are really great. get interested in it, you know, who really become expert in Absolutely. it. And those, certainly, they can pick up and mm -hmm. run with patients. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the average Joe family physician, general internist, uh, is gonna, their patients are going to benefit from a collaborative mm. approach. What is an apnea hypopnea index? It's the number of apneas Which or is hypopneas uh, in, you know, over, let's say, a one-hour period. So an apnea is when there's a cessation of breathing for 10 seconds or longer, and a hypopnea is a shallow breathing, about 50% of, of the baseline bre breathing that is accompanied by either a 3 or 4% oxygen desaturation. Mostly now, it's a 4% oxygen desaturation. So in many ways, uh, and, and, and that really is an assessment. And the reason why we chose the AHI of 15 is because that's associated with significant uh, morbidity. Here's an interesting question totally different than anything else. Do you think alpha intrusions, I'll address this to Phyllis, is a significant finding in a PSG in relation to a sleepy patient? Huh. Alpha intrusion is a PSG finding. The person who uh, actually talked about this initially was Dr. Peter Howery, and I asked him that question. He says, it is just a PSG's finding. It doesn't tell you anything. But on the other hand, it is commonly associated in patients who complain of non-restorative sleep. So having it doesn't mean you have non-restorative sleep, but unfortunately, I'm not sure what you do about alpha yeah. intrusions from a treatment standpoint, but we do find that. We, we do uh, see that uh, in, yeah. in patients. I mean, the, the first, you know, the two things which I think are very important about that, A, it's a very nonspecific finding. Mm -hmm. The regional description by Howie and, Hawker, mm -hmm. Howie and Hawkins was actually in depressed patients. Mm -hmm. but they weren't sleep disorder mm -hmm. patients, they were depressed patients. Mm -hmm. The place where it gets the most <clears throat> play in the literature is in fibromyalgia mm -hmm. patients who can play of non-restorative mm -hmm. sleep. It's a v very non-specific finding. One of the things that's very important to understand, though, Dr. Pivik <laughs> did a study where he showed the alpha, which we associate with wakefulness, is a different brain origin than that's alpha right. of alpha-delta sleep. That's right. So we don't really know enough about it. It's a very non-specific finding. But as, as Phyllis pointed out, the fact that it's non-specific doesn't change the fact that if you take 100 normals and you take 100 fibromyalgia patients, mm -hmm. that distribution is going to be very different. Right. Or if you take depressed right. patients. So we just don't know enough. So is it more likely to be in sleepy patients? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is it causal? I don't know the answer right. to that. This is actually a terrific question. It's, it's a little lengthy. And, and I'd be curious for both of you. This is a question for both of you. As a dentist, one who fits under the other category, I enjoyed your presentation. We normally see our patients two times per year, so we are measuring blood pressure, reviewing their health care. It seems natural for the dentist hygienist to take questions in, their, in, their, in their regard to sleep, which I think is interesting. Those patients can then be referred to the sleep doctor. Who are the ones who are making, who are the ones who are making their oral appliances and a good use for the ambulatory home sleep studies is to titrate the appliance prior to referring back to the sleep doc. What are your feelings about the area of involvement of dentists in the whole area of sleep apnea management? Tom, this is a growing uh, area in sleep medicine. The, you know, the, the de American Dental Sleep Medicine Society and I fully agree that screening for sleep apnea and sleep disorders in, in, by a dentist or, 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 or associates is, is tremendous. It's, it's tremendous. It's like the PCP. I mean, it's, it's, it's really tremendous. Now, there's, you know, there's really less data on how to best titrate or manage, you know, these oral appliances. I work very closely with a dentist who does exactly that, who designs your appliance, 
and, and at the same time uses these portable or home monitoring devices to titrate the distance and the adjustments right. he needs to make. I think that that's perfectly appropriate, but I always say if there was significant sleep apnea to begin with, it's very important at the right. very end to get another in-lab, another sleep study, a full PSG study, right. to really look at how appropriate adequately the treatment has been with the oral appliance. I, 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 I agree. I, I, I think, let me yeah. ask a, a question here. Uh, you know, when I refer a patient mm -hmm. to you, mm -hmm. you're going to do an expert physical exam. Is there anything in that exam, you know, when you look in the mouth, that tells you, you know, this is a particular patient mm -hmm. that might benefit, you know, from a uh, appliance or a dental mm -hmm. approach as opposed mm -hmm. to or in addition to CPAP? Mm -hmm. Okay. Their nose, their nasal passage should be somewhat patent. So right. if they're mm -hmm. totally obstructed, right. it won't work very well. Mm -hmm. They Retronathia, someone who's got retronathia, they will benefit from a little forward adjustment right. as well. Mm -hmm. They have to have teeth, okay? No teeth, no, no the oral appliance will <laughs> the not no, work. No well, gum appliances? Right, no, it, it, it really doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And their ability to protrude their lower jaw forward. If there is enough protrusion, then yes. But if they can't protrude at all because they're right. so micro or retronathic, that, that would not probably be a good candidate. And also in the mild to moderate range at I, this point see, with, with, with sleep. See, I, I think uh, one of the big advantages yeah. of sleep specialists is, is they're not wedded to a certain treatment modality. Yeah. And I think long-term sleep mm -hmm. apnea is going to be a matching. Right. You know, who, who can mm -hmm. use an oral device? Who mm -hmm. can use one of these nasal mm -hmm. strips? Who can mm -hmm. benefit from something? Mm -hmm. And who needs CPAP? And right. I think that's going to be the biggest. Yeah, would, would, would there be a patient that you look in the map, mouth and say, you know, the preferred intervention for this uh, is, you know, this is one of those unusual patients where I'm going to use that rather than CPAP. I'm not even going to try CPAP. Well, I, I, I think we, we try CPAP first right. in those patients, but of course there are patients that I will not use CPAP <laughs> right. at all and, and don't even bother and, with and, me. And then I do look at their oral anatomy mm -hmm. and their maxillofacial anatomy and determine whether they would be a good candidate right. for other therapies and decrease AP distance, right, for right. example, right. that would benefit from right. having an oral appliance. Right. On the other, somebody's got these big kissing tonsils right. or they have a huge, huge tongue. I may mm. say, maybe you need to do something else. So, but, so CPAP is the gold standard. Oh, it is the gold standard because it, it, it defines a disease. It, yeah. it, it is one of these treatments which defines right. a disease. The question is, as you heard from Phyllis, is, is it's, it's not its efficacy because it's 100% by definition unless you don't have a nasal airway right. passage. But, but, but the question is effectiveness, not efficacy. And so, that's mm -hmm. the big challenge. Mm -hmm. but, but, but I think, you know, it's, it's, so the anatomy is one of the things, but the other thing is severity. No matter what mm -hmm. the anatomy is, severe sleep apnea patients don't, refer, mm -hmm. don't respond to anything with sleep And positional therapy may right. also work. Exactly. I mean, that's another so, exactly. thing. Exactly. Very good. You know, so, so let me ask another mm -hmm. question, uh, you know, from a primary care perspective here. Uh, what's bi-level CPAP? Uh, Bi-level is where you have most, in, in the treatment of obstructive sleep apnea, it's really for comfort reasons. Uh, you can use that for ventilation Lation. as right. well, uh, mm -hmm. but just in simple terms, it just provides both a different inspiratory and expiratory pressure, so it's a bit more comfortable, so that you can have a higher inspiratory pressure with a, with a lower expiratory pressure, so you don't have to work as hard to breathe out, and usually that's for people who require higher pressures. Right. So for people who have very high pressures, can't tolerate that. And C-Flex is another mm -hmm. modality that can be used mm -hmm. to improve tolerability. You know, one of the questions is, is guidelines, and, and, and the, the the American Academy of Sleep Medicine mm -hmm. in the Journal of Sleep has a series of treatment guidelines. Treatment guidelines, and Phyllis, just correct me if I'm wrong, have been published in the last couple of years on the treatment of excessive sleepiness associated with narcolepsy, yes. shift work sleep disorder, mm -hmm. sleep apnea, 
So the, yes. these are all, so, so go to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine webpage uh, and look for their clinical guidelines. Yeah. And they have clinical treatment, they have both evaluation guidelines mm -hmm. and, practice. And, and, mm -hmm. and practice treatment guidelines mm -hmm. for each of the conditions we talked about today. And as a primary care provider, I access those so that I know what my patient's right. going to get at the other end. Exactly. They make me knowledgeable exactly. in right. terms of uh, uh, mm -hmm. you know, what to expect. Right. You know, we, we've discussed a little bit, and we actually showed a slide of it of the Malum Potty Score. Can you just give us about two minutes? So for the people who have never done one, never heard of it, it's actually origins from anesthesiology, not That's sleep right. apnea. That's right. Yeah, well, right. Well, what is a Malum right. Potty Score? Don't, what do say, you do? don't tell your patient to say, ah, okay? But they should open their mouth in a relaxed position, just like what Dr. <laughs> Culpepper is. And then you look and you, and, and you see whether you can visualize the airway. You've got to see a black hole. If you don't see the hole, and if the tongue and or the lateral or, uh, or, or posterior tissues are impinging on that, then you can see from the picture whether it's going to be a three or four. Uh, most people are probably like a two. Eh, not one. I haven't seen too many ones. Most people are about like two, and usually a four is 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 when you right. can't visualize it at all. Is it static in a patient? If I see a patient do a melancholy today, and they come back in three or four years, is I, it going to be static? I, I think barring major changes in weight or or some kind of growth, I think yes. I think so. Although I'm not sure whether we have data to answer right. that question specifically. But the other thing is, it's very, it's very important. A lot of this redundant tissue is edematous tissue, and due to snoring. Mm -hmm. So if anything, it's going to get worse across time because you get more and more edematous tissue. And in fact, that's one of the ways I can tell whether somebody's been complying with their CPAP is I take a look at their right. throat and I see that it's not swollen. Their uveal looks good. It's right. nice and pink. I say, you know, you're, you're, you're telling me the truth. Mm -hmm. so, this, is, yes. this is a terrific clinical question. If you sort of look at the package insert for both medaflin and armadaflin, the number one side effect is headaches. So I have a patient who reports chronic headache with both provigil and nuvigil medaflin and mm -hmm. armadaflin. How do you treat chronic headache if he reports that this drug is helping him, you know, the armadaflin is, is very beneficial, but, but, but the headache is a problem. What do you, what do, you do with that? That's, 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 that's difficult. I think, one, we, you, you may want to just go back and evaluate and see what type of headache they're having. Is this indeed a vascular headache that has been worsened or exacerbated by uh, modafinil? If it is, then you can always treat them as if they had a, a vascular headache, a migraine headache or a cluster headache or something else. If not, I, 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 you know, I think if, if it's, uh, it, it depends on the severity. I have found that decreasing the dose sometimes helps splitting the dose into two doses, uh, a smaller dose in the morning and another one in the mid-afternoon or early uh, around noontime can sometimes help. But this is, again, totally uncharted territory. This is what this I have tried. Yeah. This is what I have tried. Yeah, I've actually seen a, you know, a patient that... Yeah, it is one of these where the patients just sort of dig a hole for mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah, they they had headache, which as I look back was mm -hmm. sort of the transient headache mm -hmm. that's, uh, you know, that some patients do get. Mm -hmm. But then they started using, uh, you know, Tylenol right. with codeine. Right. Yeah, right. Right. And you know they were, and when I really got down, she was taking like three or four different preparations. Right. Yeah, you know, and paradoxically, the right. treatment was. We took her off of right. everything except right. Right. You know, right. uh, right. the armor and she did a lot better. Yeah. Right. Okay, uh, this is actually a very good question. It's a very clinical, right, right to the point question. Um, and, and we may spend a couple of minutes on this. And, I, you know, again, I just want to, we don't have that much time left. I want to apologize for those of you who sent questions. We just have an amazing number of questions we're trying to get through. We're not going to get through, you know, most of them. 
I want to uh, ask a question. This is a very important topic in our facility. I would like more information. If I, you know, if I have a woman over 60 years old, she clearly has had a psychiatric condition, a psychiatric consult. She has no psychiatric history whatsoever. You know, we did a skid. I'm going to make it up, and the skid is negative. She has hypersomnia. What do you do? And her sleep study is normal. No I mean, sleep no, study. No, no. What, what do you do at oh. this point? Day I, one. I, anyone who has hypersomnia, I actually, that's one of the indications for a sleep study because you want right. to see whether she's got mm -hmm. obstructive sleep apnea. What's her sleep quality like? Is she really sleeping those hours or she's having a fragmented sleep that she's unaware of? Mm -hmm. And could she even have just upper airway resistance? Yeah. Leg movements. I mean, all of these things can disturb her sleep before I make the diagnosis. She just has idiopathic right. hypersomnia. I, I, I think, you know, beyond that for me, that one of the very first things you want to get to, which is very very, very important, a critically important distinction is, is, is you know, we sort of lost this in the ESM-4 when it was originally driver, the ESM-2 actually, is we talk about a hypersomnia. The mm -hmm. sleep community makes a distinction between daytime sleepiness mm -hmm. and hypersomnia. Yes. For me, hypersomnia mm -hmm. is somebody who's sleeping 12, 14, 15 exactly. hours a day. They're sleeping through it. They just have this abnormal exactly. drive for sleep. Mm -hmm. They sleep nine hours, they wake up exhausted, they mm -hmm. 14. People with excessive daytime sleepiness an apnea patient can sleep 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and ain't going to make it better. Right. So, so right. we want to differentiate, right. is this right. a patient with right. narcolepsy? For example, narcolepsy yeah. patients don't have hypersomnia. They actually have insomnia, if anything, <laughs> but they have daytime sleepiness. Very so fragmented. I would want to know, is this patient requiring a lot of sleep, mm -hmm. or, and or, or are they just sleeping no matter how many hours mm -hmm. of sleep do they get? Mm -hmm. and I think that's a critically important mm -hmm. distinction. Mm -hmm. And the way you get that is just mm -hmm. like Phyllis said, mm -hmm. is you do something like an MSLT, to find out how sleepy mm -hmm. they are, and you sleep them at live in the laboratory, do they sleep 14 hours? Right. Yeah, and, and is this a, a shift phase disorder? Right. You know, it's masquerading, exactly. it's just extra time. Exactly. So, so you go different ways. If they're sleeping 14, 15 hours, you go to things like trauma, clonal yeah, Absolutely. They're, they're, you know, on the other hand, if it's sleepiness, we go to sleep apnea, <laughs> narcolepsy, and things like that. So we really got to get that distinction right. in mind. You want to rule out all these other conditions that right. can cause sleepiness. Well, and, and, a, and a key history item here, I think, is the duration, you know, is this something that's just recently developed or is this a long-term problem that's just coming uh, to life because uh, or coming to recognition? Uh, you know, in a 60-year-old who developed hypersomnia after a stroke, obviously yes. you're looking at a very different situation than somebody that says, you know, I've slept like this, you know, for the last 15 Correct. years. It's just because I now am in this condition mm -hmm. that I need. So I'm going to end with this last question. We have less than a minute left. So this is, this is it gets to the heart of what we're discussing today, which is excessive sleepiness. It says, I, ha I have adolescents and adults often associating excessive sleepiness with boredom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, 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 it's like a defense mechanism they use to give reasons for excessive sleepiness and, and often to deny suffering from a disorder. What's the right approach for such a patient? What, what, is it, what does boredom have to do with sleepiness? Well, one of the factors, one of the factors that affects sleepiness, of course, the level of sleepiness, is the task that you're right. performing. So surely boredom, if you're really excited, you're, you're less likely to fall asleep. But the fact is that in that situation, they didn't mean, like I said, they didn't go to the opera. Mm -hmm. Although it may be boring, they didn't pay all that money to go to the opera to fall asleep or to the movie theater to fall asleep. That is a sign. And, and Tom, you have a good, right. good uh, I think, uh, example of what's the difference yeah. between yeah. sleepiness and boredom. Pre-adolescents who get good sleep every night do not fall asleep when they're bored. College students, adults fall asleep when they're bored because of other reasons. 
thank I want to thank our guests, but I, I just want to thank our audience for this immense list of questions, and, and not only questions, but great questions which, which tax our ideas, some of which we'd know the answers to, and, and thank you all.